If you look at interest rates all by itself and think that we can't move rents in, in response to the interest rate increases, that I don't think that that would be a fair analysis, right? Because I've seen it happen over time. We raise rents for lots of different reasons. And that's why it's so important, I think, that when you select your market, you select a good economic setup. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, we're talking with a real estate veteran with over 24 years of experience in real estate investing. His name is Ken Gee, and we're learning a few very important lessons from Ken today. First off, considering how long he's been in real estate, that means he was around in the real estate space during the Great Recession, both prior to the Great Recession, through it, and then now after the Great Recession. And we're digging into lessons that he took away from the Great Recession, what caused the Great Recession, and really the impacts on the real estate investing market, and how we can compare and contrast today's real estate market conditions with the conditions back then, and the most important lessons that he took away from the Great Recession, from watching other people really struggle with their real estate portfolios. So great lessons there. We also dive into the three things a real estate investment firm must have before you give them your money. This, this is a message for the passive investors out there, which I'm sure I know many of you are. The three things that a real estate investment firm must have before you give them your money. Very important, great lessons. And considering the amount of experience that he has, this is a, a fantastic insight for those of you that are maybe newer in your passive investing journey and haven't built your due diligence procedures out and don't know what to look for, these th these three things will really help you out in your search. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in apartment buildings and self-storage properties. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, go to investwithtaylor.com. Once again, investwithtaylor.com. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. And I really appreciate it, you guys. That does help other people learn about the show. It helps us spread these messages to other people and help everybody escape Wall Street. So that's what we're all about here. No matter what podcast app you use, if you enjoy the show, do take a moment, look us up and hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your bubble device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Ken Gee from KRI Partners. A lot of great lessons in this one. Without any further ado, here we go. Ken, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. It's been a great conversation so far. We've been on the line for 25 minutes already and time has flown by. I know our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of our conversation today. For those out there who don't know about you and what you do, can you tell us about your background, what you invest in, and, and what you help people with? Sure. My background, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, moved to uh, Cleveland in 1991, I think it was. Went to work for Deloitte and a small bank in the Cleveland area. Worked on the tax side at Deloitte. Spent seven years as a CPA. Uh, about then is when I started investing in real estate in 1997. Bought my first apartment building. Fast forward to today, we're syndicators. We uh, buy primarily in central and northern Florida, southeast states, and we've just finished raising our first blind pool fund and uh, are about to start raising money for our next uh, fund. 
And all we do are multifamily BC class value add deals. And um, that's it. We've been doing it for about 23 years. Awesome. And I really, uh, I really like talking with you know, folks like yourself that have that experience investing in real estate, especially prior to the Great Recession. And I don't know if you were investing in Florida at the time when that happened, but you know, I'd love to dig into maybe any of those lessons that that you might have from those days, or you know, whether they're they were learned, you know, the hard way or or not. Yeah, sure. So the company grew up in Cleveland. So at that time, but believe it or not, actually a really low point in my life was end of 07, early 08, I'd gone through a personal divorce, had two kids. So about that time, you know, real estate was really struggling and uh, I'd gone through a divorce. So I spent a lot of time with my kids during that time, but we owned some assets in the Cleveland market at that time. So Cleveland has never really been a growth market. So particularly hard hit by the recession. And the number one lesson I learned from the Great Recession was to manage your debt maturities really carefully if you're a long-term player in this business. Most apartment guys and gals did fine through that time because for the very reason I invest in apartments, people still need a place to live. That's not going to go away. And most of the time, those people, you know, they were still relatively full. The challenge was the re- and and I was actually a student of this thing. I watched this thing minute by minute by minute unfold. I mean, I was glued to CNBC, watched the Too Big to Fail documentary. I mean, I really learned a lot from this because I felt like it was going to be really good lessons for me to take forward with me. But the number one thing that hurt people was when the regulators came in and told the banks to get the real estate off their books because they viewed all real estate as toxic. And they were throwing, basically, you've heard the expression, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's what they were doing. So you had good banks, non-renewing term loans with good customers for good properties for no other reason than the regulators said, wait a minute, I'm not going to accept the books and records that you normally look at. I'm going to use the guy's tax return which he expenses way more than he would for regular book gap reporting. So the books and records showed the real estate not performing well. Then the regulator said you couldn't renew the loans and where else. So normally you could refinance those loans somewhere else because they were fine. The problem was during that recession, there was nowhere to go with that real estate. So the guys that got in trouble were just the ones that happened to have not had good maturities during that time. So we've always been really careful Ever since then, because that's a really valuable lesson to lose your property, not because it underperformed, but because the lender and there was no there's no credit there to extend. So that's the number one lesson I learned from that recession. I don't know if that's interesting or not, but it is uh, exactly what happened to people. It certainly is. Uh, That is a very interesting lesson. And, And we find ourselves today, you know, when we're talking that you know the Fed is talking about raising interest rates, and you know in the market we've seen people taking out pretty long uh, interest-only loans. I've spoken with investors who got uh, bought properties a few years ago with pretty significant prepayment penalties on them, but they didn't really understand the prepayment penalties, and that ended up coming around to bite them. And that it's not necessarily the the maturity comment that you had, but still, it's in that realm of folks not really understanding the the debt that they're taking out. No, you're exactly right. So that's the other side of the debt coin. And that is you want that that gives you enough flexibility that you can extend it if you need to, but you also want the debt to be structured so that you can sell it when you want to. You don't want to be held hostage in a deal 
because of the debt. You just don't. And people are, you're right. There are a lot of people right now mm-hmm. who, you know, we're hovering, waiting to buy these properties. The moment they can get out of their prepays or their prepays are manageable, then we're happy to step in. The problem is, you know, there are supplemental loans available and things like that. There's other ways to finance those deals, but you can't get as much as you can if you can put brand new debt on these deals. So yeah, debt management is a really, uh, you're right. Nobody thinks about it. Nobody talks about it when they're teaching people how to do real estate. But if you don't manage your debt carefully, it could hurt you. It could frustrate you. And uh, you just want to give yourself as many options as you can. Well, that's one of those uh, people not talking about it is a very good point. And I guess it's one of the aspects of real estate investing that isn't, uh, if you will, uh, pardon the expression, it's not a sexy part of real estate. And also, a lot of people have misconceptions about debt generally. They think all debt is bad and, and real estate debt, as long as you do it right, it's not necessarily bad. It's not. And one of the things I'll, I'll, I'll compare and contrast 07, 08 to now, you know, I get this question all the time, you know, is it okay to buy now? You're at the top. Aren't you worried? Well, there's a lot of reasons that I'm not worried. But when I compare what happened in 07, 08 to what's happening now, the one of the contributing major factors to the problem in 07, 08 was that lenders were lending to people. Uh, so let's take Florida. Everybody was converting apartments to condos in Florida. If it had four walls and a roof, you were trying to convert it to a condo. I mean, it really was the threshold. Mm-hmm. So people were lending money on these apartment deals. As an apartment complex, they were at a 0.8 debt service coverage ratio, which really means you, you don't even make enough money to service your debt. But they did it because they felt that the guy or gal was going to flip it into a condo conversion. And if it worked as a condo conversion, they would be fine because the loan to, to sale value would be fine. The problem is the asset quality that they were trying to convert just got lower and lower and lower over time. And then you got greedy investors trying to buy 20 and 30 of these things all at once. And it just imploded on itself. So lenders did not, they got too aggressive back in 07, 08. And that doesn't even, I didn't even get into the subprime stuff and everything else in the <laughs> family market. Compare that to now. I mean, we're buying now and they're going to keep you at a 120 debt service coverage ratio. So that's discipline. That's in place numbers. And you pay whatever you want for that property. But we're not lending any more than what the debt service will allow. And you have to be able to pay your debt service. And that's a really, really important safeguard in the system because that didn't happen before. And that allowed people to hurt themselves. Now, you pay whatever you want, but it's all going to be your money, not ours. That's that's the way the lender is. And and that is really, really important part of the process right now. Nice. So we were talking before we hit record about, you know, uh, economics and this to keep going down this thread of potentially increasing interest rates or, or what's going to happen over the next couple of years. And and I gathered from from that conversation that we're of a similar mind in that way about what we're kind of expecting the government to do. And then there's there's the expectation of what they could do, what they're signaling, and then also how do we plan our businesses and our investments around that. So let's dive into you know the future of interest rates in all three of those you know realms. Sure, sure. So you know I'm going to disclaim everything. This is just one man's opinion. Uh, I follow a lot of economic forecasting companies. Uh, I do that because I need the real deal. I need to know what's really going on based on real numbers, not a media hype number or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the first thing that I'll say. Couple couple comments on rates, and uh, I'm losing my voice here. Couple comments on rates. Uh, The first is I don't think they're moving 
significantly anytime soon. Number one, I don't think the federal government can afford to double their interest rate expense. I just think that would be a bad idea for them. Number one. Number two, I don't think they want to take the risk that they will significantly impact any asset class value because that will that'll be extremely counterproductive to them. Now, what's interesting about apartments is if rates were to go up, our competing product is a single family home. If interest rates go up, that means single family homes become more expensive. When our competing product gets more expensive, that means we can raise interest rates to partially offset that or raise rents to partially offset that interest rate increase. So if you look at interest rates all by itself and think that we can't move rents in, in response to the interest rate increases, that I don't think that that would be a fair analysis, right? Because I've seen it happen over time. We raise rents for lots of different reasons. And that's why it's so important, I think, that when you select your market, you select a good economic setup, right? We're in the growth market, central, northern Florida, um, the southeast, the southwest. There's lots of markets like this. Basically, demand far exceeds supply. And the supply that we buy, which is BC class assets, they're not building. So we already have upward pressure on rents. Now, we, if, if rates do tend to go, if they do actually go up, our rents are going to continue to increase because people will have to choose renting over buying a single family home because the cost of that home will go up. So that will help offset some of it. And we finish that whole analysis off, which is using a reversionary cap rate, meaning when you go to sell the property, we're going to project what we think we can sell it for. And we're going to use a cap rate that is not the same as what we bought in at, right? We're going to move it a little bit up to see what happens if interest rates do go up. And we want to make sure that we protect our downside and let the upside take care of itself, right? That's what's important to me. And all of our calculations, all of our analysis, our sensitivity analysis includes some analysis that tries to determine if rates do go up what, and cap rates do move up against us, what happens to the value. I think that's smart to do in your, your underwriting in particular when we're talking about, okay, we expect you know the, the, the Fed to do blank, but in our business, we need to plan if, if our expectation is the Fed's going to do this thing that's, hey, not that bad, our plan needs to account for actually what if it's worse than that? What happens? What are we going to do? And we need to be ready for that, you know, potential scenario, and not just always bank on, you know, uh, uh, sunshine and you know, green grass and all of that. Agreed. I, I do think the Fed finds itself in a very difficult position right now. And again, this is just one man talking, but the reasons inflation are here. This is always demand supply, right? Everything in this capital world, capitalistic world, is demand supply. But we right now are still having a supply problem. And when you have scarce supply, price goes up to try to compensate for it, right? That's the way demand and supply works. So even though our demand is higher than it was pre-pandemic in most situations, at least the economies that I follow, that's what they tell me, we need supply to catch up. And the most recent virus uh, variant that's hitting us is going to impact supply even more. So we're going to have even some more supply constrictions. But what's important is raising rates to tamp down demand has lots of different implications, not just tamping down demand to try to compensate supply. What I think they really want, and I think they're trying to do, is fix some of the supply side problem because then that allows that equation to come back in balance. Right now, it's trying to find equilibrium. And the only way to do that, because demand doesn't seem to be going away, is to just try to beat it down or to fix the supply side. And I think that's what the real solution here is. And the Fed is, I don't know that it's equipped to really deal with the supply side of the equation. They're they're trying to always deal with the demand side. So 
we'll see how this plays out. It'll be interesting to hear this uh, episode a year from now. <laughs> see what happens. For sure. You know, we we definitely um, we live in interesting times, but but I think we always have it. I think that also gets at what you said about stepping back from the general like financial media. And I don't want to call it any particular news outlets here, but the 24 hour cable news where everything is always just the worst disaster in the world and everything's so bad. Whereas you're, you know, aiming to look at the, the actual data and making decisions, which I think is, is important to do. I, I would agree. I think it's extremely important, especially in our, in our business. I mean, we, we have to make decisions that are based on facts, not the flavor of the day. <laughs> right. Now, um, another kind of aspect of this that, that I want to make sure uh, we get to, a, a, a talking point that you have, if you will, are the three things a real estate investment firm must have before you give them your money. And I think that is very good uh, information for the passive investors out there to, to hear. So let's dive into it. Yeah, so you're, uh, you're hitting uh, something that I really feel very, very strongly about, and that is this. Um, we all know the Jobs Act back in 2012 started this whole private money world, mm -hmm. right? And I'm thrilled that they did, not just because we can participate in it, but because it gives real people opportunities to make money that they never had before, right? And it really started, it's still not level playing field, but it's a lot more level than it used to be. Mm -hmm. So it's important to me that passive investors really learn how to vet sponsors. So three things. Number one, I want people to look at the terms that the sponsor is offering the investor. You want the investor terms to be as friendly as possible. And by that, I want, if you're a passive investor vetting us as a sponsor, for example, and you're thinking about investing in our fund, I want you to ask yourself, is it possible for KRI to do really well and me as the passive investor to not do really well? That answer should always be no. These two have to move <laughs> together, right? It, it has to be that way. And look very carefully at the terms. Read the documents. Nobody reads these documents. I wish they did. I spend a lot of time making sure they're perfect. But you got to read them because there's really important information in there that will help you understand and make that determination. So that's number one. I think it's super critical to make sure those terms are, are aligned. Secondly, I want you to look at the track record of whoever it is that you're looking to invest with. Now, everybody knows past you know, performance is not necessarily a, a, you know, a, an indicator of future performance, but that is a pretty, if somebody has a 20 plus year track record and they've generally been successful over that period, I mean, that doesn't happen by accident, right? If they did one deal and they nailed it on one deal, well, maybe, right? I mean, you know, I, I, I wrote a whole book about that whole concept that you can, you can kill it on one deal, but if you can do it over and over again, which a track record does show you, that's really, really important. So make sure you spend some time and look at the track record and insist on seeing it. We have all of our stuff in terms of transparency on a site called veravest.com. I'm not their spokesperson. I have nothing to do with them other than they provide what I think is a super valuable service to this whole private capital market. And that is guys like us pay them a lot of money and they look <laughs> under the hood. And it's a lot of money. It's expensive to do this, but I had to send them 23 years of settlement statements, tax returns, bank statements. I mean, you name it. They looked at every deal that we did, made sure that that our returns that we report, are reporting are accurate. They tick and tie it right on their site. You can see it. It's full, fully transparent. 
They did a full background check on us. What else did they do? They also did public record searches to find the deal that the sponsors don't tell you about, right? If I did a deal and it tanked, all I have to do is not tell you. How would you know? Mm -hmm. Well, they have ways to find it out. I don't know specifically what they do in that department, but they they look and we don't we don't hide stuff. So I know they didn't find anything like that. And then finally, they monitor us going forward. So if you're an investor in one of our current deals, they have our operating agreement. And every quarter, we have to send a bank statement to bank recs. And they compare everything that we're doing to what we're reporting to make sure that we're on the up and up. I think that's hugely valuable. So that track record, I know I told you I was getting excited about this stuff, but this is really important Mm -hmm. to the long-term health of this business, I think. And the last thing is experience. You know, we have it, right? So of course, I'm going to focus on that, but there is nothing that you, you can't substitute 23, 24 years of experience. I've gone through 07, 08. I went, I've gone through so many different cycles in real estate, the pandemic, everything else. Here's what's important about experience. Everybody understands that experience is what is important. But the reason it's important is that, you know, these real estate deals, these apartment complexes, they're businesses. And you need to rely on the experience of the senior management team, of the people that are running these businesses to help it through whatever's coming around the corner. We, we don't know what's coming next. I mean, who would have ever imagined this pandemic, right? I mean, that there's I mean, no way I could have thought about that before I was putting a deal together. No chance that I did that. But I'm able to do is draw on the experiences that I've had over the past 20 plus years in this business to help make sure we're set up right so that we get through it just fine. And we've done very well through it. It hasn't been a problem. So make sure that they check investor-friendly terms, really, really important. Secondly, check the track record and insist on making sure that it's verified. And finally, make sure your sponsor has experience, right? Just don't invest in the guy or gal's first deal. Let let their family members do that. (laughs) I don't know if that's helpful, but... Very, very helpful. I I certainly appreciate that. And and before we move on to the three questions I ask every guest on the show, I want to kind of put a bow on on this, you know, a part of the episode, I suppose, and and really kind of sum up, especially our early part of the conversation. We talked about your lessons from the Great Recession and where we stand today. My impression from what you had to say is you don't expect us to hit another uh, severe crash in the real estate market because of the different conditions in the lending market and scarce resources, scarce assets. They're not building, they're not overbuilding real estate in the vast majority of markets. Is there anything else I'm missing or can you you sum it up a little more eloquently uh, than I can? Well, the lessons that I learned from the Great Recession, here were the biggest causes of the Great Recession. I'm going to do this off the top of my head, so I might miss one. But what happened was we had single family home buyers that were getting stated assets, stated income loans. Mm -hmm. They walked in and said they had a million bucks in the bank and they made $3 million a year. Bankers said, okay, sign here. And they got whatever loan they wanted. They were given loans that were on teaser uh, adjustable rates that they didn't understand. They didn't realize that in six months, the rate was going to go up by 2%. So they didn't really have the income to pay for the higher mortgage, right? The people thought the bankers would keep them out of trouble. So those are two things that happened. Then you had banks doing loans with creditors, with credit risks that were substandard. It's called the uh, subprime loan market, right? Because they wanted to do loans. So they had to go find new customers. So they did loans that they shouldn't have done. Then they insured all these loans by something called a credit default swap. And those credit default swaps were all insured by one or two companies, the biggest one being AIG. So when all these loans started to go bad, they all went to AIG to make good on the loans. AIG couldn't make good on all the loans at once. That's when you started to see all these Wall Street banks crumbling. So that that is a very quick story. 
None of that stuff is happening now. It's just not. There are a lot of lessons that were learned back then that are stopping this thing from recurring. So, you know, the lenders are holding the line on, on their underwriting. You know, the Fed's watching them. The banks just went through a series of stress tests, I think, within the last year. There's so many things that are not happening now that did back then. And apartments are being bought and sold based on true fundamentals, their ability to generate cash flow. And as long as that continues, we're going to be okay. Nice. I appreciate you summing that up for us. And and hopefully we have a, a collective wisdom from you know the, the lessons learned through the Great Recession and regulators and bankers and all of that behave a little better uh, this time around. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Ken, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yep. Great. Yes. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Real estate in general. I mean, if you're talking about a financial investment, it's by far real estate. It has completely changed my life. And remember, I had a pretty good career prior to this. I was a, a tax manager at a big five, four firm. And uh, probably would be there today if I didn't change my life. So real estate, number one. Interesting. And, and looking back, you're you're glad you're in real estate and not still in the in the big four. Oh yeah, it's a lot more fun. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. Great. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah, financially, it, it's got to be the stock market. I mean, I I just have never done really well in the stock market. I think you know part of the tunnel here show is uh, talking about the stock market as a casino. And that's kind of how I feel. I mean, it, you know, this thing more recently, a DocuSign dropped by 40%. Wow. Seriously, DocuSign was 40% less valuable one day than it was the next. Doesn't make any sense to me. And when you get that big of a disconnect from the value of a company to what's really going on inside the company, that, that tells me that there's, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't give me any uh, comfort. So yeah. stock market, I don't like it. <laughs> nice. We talk about the Wall Street Casino here, so I'm right there on board with you. Yes. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? In business and investing, in investing, I would say it's this constant battle I have that goes on inside my head 
where, and I think I'm like a lot of people, I have this saying, you are where you are because you choose to be there. And, oh, that sounds interesting. But when you think about what that means, you're where you're at in your life. You do what you do because that's what your mind has understood and decided that you can and should do. And what I've done is try, I'm trying to teach myself to constantly redefine who I can be. And that, I think, is the most critical component of it, and just constantly retraining your mind. Because what I find, what I've learned over the 20-some years, I mean, if I look back to what I grew up with and what I grew up in and, and every, all of my stepping stones along the way, every single time I redefine that, I get to a new place and a new level. I don't know. That's the best answer I would have for that. And that is just constantly retrain your mind to think about what Think about things differently because your mind is what's stopping you from being whatever it is you think you might want to be. Does that make sense? I love that. I believe you know success in particular uh, really, really starts in our mind. And, and that is really what either allows us to grow or prevents us from growing. And we can, we can hopefully uh, train that, train our mind to push us further. And Ken, it's been a great conversation today. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more from you know, anything else that you've put out there or anything like that, where can they track you down? Sure. So go to kripartners.com slash ebook. So I wrote this book myself. The title of the book is called Multifamily Real Estate's a Total Game Changer because it is. I mean, there's no question in my mind. So it tackles two questions. The number one question that everybody faces when they get into the business, and that is they know people are making tons of money in real estate. They're just trying to figure out how it fits in their life because it fits in everybody's life in a different way. Some people should be passive. Some people want to go buy duplexes. Some people, you know, whatever, whatever it is. I help guide you through that thought process to give you pros and cons for each one as to what you might want to consider. I believe multifamily is the place, the safest place to be. There's no safe place to be in anything in this world, but that is the safest place to be. Now, the second part of the book deals with, because I think most people end up, if they actually look at their life, they've got pretty good, you know, day jobs, they're physicians, they're attorneys, they're whatever, doctors, whatever it is that they are, you've got a pretty good life as your first income. So they should probably be passive investors. And like you heard me talk about, I'm pretty passionate about this concept of vetting sponsors. So the second part of the book talks about how to vet sponsors. And I try to give you some insight about how this business really works. When guys like me go out and raise money and start our business and do what we do, what makes us take the actions that we do? What matters to us so that we can be successful in the next deal and the next deal and the next deal? Because I think if you understand how the business works, you're in a better position as a passive investor to spot, spot people that aren't kind of doing things that would make them really show to be long-term players. So a uh, long-winded explanation. I, you know, the book's not long. It's free. KRIpartners.com slash ebook. Uh, download it. The only thing you got to do is give me your email address. And uh, I don't know, hopefully you take something away from it. Awesome. Well, you know, condensing 24 years of knowledge into an ebook, uh, especially that people can get for free is very helpful. And I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a great conversation to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple podcasts. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. People see your reviews and they think, hey, I need to listen to the show to escape the Wall Street Casino. And I'm always honest with you guys. I say this every show. It gives me That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, 
please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe no matter what podcast app you use and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you'd like to connect with me and learn more about what I do, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and take the next steps. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.